Hello and welcome to Pin Drop World News, the show where each week we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm AJ Camacho. Here to guide us through today's show as we explore the news around Thailand, specifically the country's agriculture sector and its quasi-democratic regime system. We'll be hearing from Eric Kuhonta, a professor of political science at McGill University. As always, we'll conclude with a panel to discuss the news and what our guest had to say. On today's panel, we have as a guest, my dear brother, Kai Camacho. Before we get into Thailand, a quick note. Last season, we did a fan-chosen episode. It ended up being Mongolia, as nominated by Emily Philbrook. We're looking for nominations for our fan-chosen episode this season, right now. So, however you're watching this, whether it's on YouTube or listening on your podcast app, consider leaving a comment on whatever medium you're using, nominating a country or an issue that you would like us to address on the show. I mean, you've seen us cover Iran's axis of resistance, the European Union. It doesn't have to be a country in the strict sense. It could be any broad global issue that you might be interested in. Now, also, other ways that you could submit it include on our Instagram. Send us a direct message, or if you're watching during the right time, our Instagram story will actually have a form on it through which you can nominate a country. Our Instagram, by the way, is pindrop.podcast. And once we have our nominations in, we'll go through two rounds of voting to decide which country you all would like us to cover, and we'll proceed ahead with that. Whoever nominates the winning country or other issue, by the way, will be invited on Pindrop as a guest panelist for that show. Alrighty, enough of that. Let's go to the country profile. We don't expect you to know everything about Thailand. Heck, we certainly don't even after this week of intense research. So here are some fast facts. Its capital is Bangkok. Its king is Mahavajira Longkorn, also known as Rama X. The official language is Thai. The currency is the Thai baht. Its dialing code is plus six six. It has a population of about 72 million people. Its current prime minister is Sreta Thavisin. And fun fact, according to the BBC, the first example of Thai writing is believed by most Thais to be a stone inscription found on a four-sided pillar at Sukhothai, dated 1292 AD. In this inscription, King Ramkamahang describes the prosperity of his kingdom, its legal system, the social and economic organization of society, the benevolence of its ruler, of course, and even the invention of the Thai script. While the inscription's authenticity is disputed, what is not is that spoken Thai is quite similar to other Southeast Asian languages, especially Loatian. In fact, the two are so similar that Thai TV and music are quite popular in Laos, even among those who've never officially learned Thai. Now for a rundown of Thailand's history and politics. Our tale begins in ancient times, with the land we know as Thailand being home to various indigenous cultures. Over the centuries, the region saw the rise and fall of different kingdoms, including the powerful Ayutthaya Kingdom, which flourished from the 14th to 18th centuries. The late 18th century brought about the founding of the Chakri dynasty, with King Rama I establishing the present-day capital, Bangkok, as the kingdom's center. The Chakri dynasty has been a defining force in Thai history, with successive monarchs contributing to the nation's cultural and political identity. Thailand, known as Siam until 1939, managed to avoid direct colonization by European powers during the colonial era. Indeed, the French and British specifically offered a degree of protection to Thailand to serve as a buffer between French colonies in modern Vietnam and British colonies in modern Myanmar. This unique position allowed Thailand to modernize while maintaining its independence. The 20th century brought significant changes including a shift to a constitutional monarchy. In 1932, a bloodless revolution led by a group of intellectuals and military officers transformed Thailand from an absolute monarchy to a constitutional monarchy, laying the foundations for modern Thai politics. 
Thailand's political landscape has been marked by periods of military rule interspersed with civilian governments. The role of the monarchy has been a central aspect of Thai politics and society, with the monarchy traditionally enjoying a revered status. Recent decades have seen Thailand grappling with political turbulence, with periodic protests and changes in government. The country has experienced a delicate balance between democratic aspirations and military influence, with the most recent military coup occurring in 2014. Economic growth has been a key feature of Thailand's recent history, transforming it into one of Southeast Asia's economic powerhouses. However, challenges such as income inequality and political unrest persist. The monarchy continues to play a crucial role in Thai society, and the passing of King Rama IX in 2016 marked a significant moment in the nation's history. His son, King Rama X, ascended to the throne, ushering in a new chapter for the Chakri dynasty. Now let's get into our discussion of the big issues, starting with agriculture. Agriculture is important to humans in general. It's considered the bedrock of civilization and, of course, we all need to eat. However, agriculture has an outsized impact on Thailand relative to most other countries. According to the United Nations, roughly 30% of Thais work on farms, although some Thai sources place that figure as high as 40%. Despite this, only around 8% of the country's GDP comes from agriculture. At that rate, Thai agriculture is less profitable per laborer than most neighbors like Malaysia and Vietnam. Indeed, Thai agriculture is not just suffering from bad macroeconomics. The impact is being felt on an individual level. According to the Pue Fakorn Institute, the average Thai farming household is about 13,000 US dollars in debt, with 57% of indebted farmers saying they cannot settle their loans in full. Much of the challenges for Thai farmers in recent years have stemmed from volatile agricultural markets. This is especially true of rice, one of the main products of Thai farms. Rice prices declined dramatically over the 2008 Great Recession and still have not yet fully recovered. However, global markets for rice have ticked up in 2023, showing a glimmer of hope for farmers' financial challenges. The current government of Prime Minister Sreta Thavisin aims to triple farmers' incomes by 2027. Key to this plan was the government's decision in September to suspend farmers' debt for three years. Other measures the government has implemented include temporary price controls on certain goods like sugarcane and offering subsidized means to acquire higher-tech farming equipment. The government has also suggested more rice and sugarcane farmers should switch to raising cattle or growing medicinal plants, which have generally a less volatile market. Now, onto our second and final big issue, democracy. Thai politics gained international attention in May of 2023, when the Progressive Move Forward Party, led by Pita Limjaronrat, won 30% of seats in Thailand's House of Representatives, more than any other party. For a country considered to be more conservative, this was quite a shock. Not the least because Move Forward's top policy priorities included rewriting the Thai constitution and removing the military from politics. Unfortunately for Lim Jaronrat and Move Forward, their hard stance against military involvement in the government was their downfall, since all 250 members of the Thai Senate were appointed by the Thai army. Lim Jaronrat needed to secure a majority of votes in all of the parliament, both the House and the Senate, and with almost all senators voting against him, Lim Jaronrat was unable to form a government. In the end, the populist Phu Thai party formed a coalition that granted it the votes needed to secure a government, and Lim Jaronrat was booted as Move Forward's leader. The Economist's Democracy Index rates Thailand as a flawed democracy, but it's easy to wonder if this is being too generous. After all, military appointees blocked the presumptive prime minister, who effectively won the popular vote, from taking office. Thailand's democratic status is not only complicated by the military, but also by its monarchy. Under the Lege Majesté law, criticizing the king, queen, or heir apparent can lead to a maximum 15-year prison sentence for each offense.
And this isn't one of those silly laws that are never enforced. On the contrary, enforcement of the Lege Magistella is quite strict in the country. Courts have already ruled that criminal intent does not need to be established for a defendant to be convicted, and that even factual claims regarding the monarchy can be considered illegal under the law. A day after Move Forward won a plurality in the May elections, Lim Jerongrat reintroduced a bill that would amend the Lege Majesté law. He explained his motivations at a press conference. It's the sentiment of the era that has changed. Uh, and the job or the, the duty of member of parliament is to speak on the behalf of people, is to pass progressive laws, is to make sure that we support the uh, duty of the government. And that was my past duty. So far, there has been no success in efforts to amend the Lege Majesté law to reduce punishments and broaden civil rights. With so many protections to the power of the monarchy and military baked into Thai institutions, what are the prospects that the country can democratize further? Perhaps more importantly, can it do so peacefully? To answer these questions and more, we go now to our guest interview. I am AJ Camacho, and I'm speaking right now with Eric Kuhonta. He is a professor of political science at McGill University, where he specializes in the Southeast Asia region, among other areas. Professor Kuhonta, thank you very much for joining Pindrak today. Thank you for having me. I want to start with referencing a 2010 op-ed you wrote for the Gazette. Uh, in that particular op-ed, you said, um, to quote you directly, that Thailand has long been a bastion of stability in Southeast Asia. Now, of course, you point out it's had its share of coups, but by the regional standards, it had that reputation. But in the 13 years since you wrote that op-ed, after mass protests in 2020, 2021, and with the recent election results and eventual government that was formed this year, do you think that that reputation still holds? Yeah, that's a that's a, a great question. Um, I mean, if you if you look at Thailand's history um, overall, um, in terms of stability, um, it has the the um, the state has been relatively um, consistent in terms of the fact that there haven't been uh, significant uh, uh, revolutions, uprisings that have undermined overall. Uh, direction of, of governance and the economy has done well. Thailand boomed in the in the um, in the late 80s, early 90s. So in that sense, uh, Thailand has uh, been relatively bastion of stability, um, and in terms of geopolitics, has been seen as, as, as a solid anchor in in Southeast Asia. Now um, that said, there's a lot of qualifiers and caveats to to that statement, and in particular, um, in the past. Um, let's say 2006, uh, you know, 16, 17 years, uh, Thailand has been racked by numerous um, um, uh, demonstrations, protests, and and then two coups in 2006, um, and then another one in 2014, uh, and and these coups and these protests, counter protests from different groups, have been largely um, about. Um, Fundamental questions uh, about uh, who should, how should one govern Thailand? Uh, what are the the the, the, um, the current fundamental rights of the citizens? What is the role of the monarchy? Um, and these issues have really boiled over uh, significantly um, in these sort of 15, 16 years. So, so in the big trajectory, Thailand, I still argue, is relatively stable. But in the past 15, 16 years, there has been quite a bit of turmoil. So stability is one question, but democracy is also another. Um, the Economist, in their latest report, which was published before these recent elections, considered Thailand to be a flawed democracy, but still a democracy rather than a hybrid regime. But in these recent elections, the party that won the most votes has not ended up becoming the government. We saw the importance of military appointees in the Senate, and central to all of this was a law that uh, prohibits insults towards the Thai monarchy. In light of these things, do you expect that The Economist will reevaluate that position in its next report? Or perhaps you 
do you agree with it in the first place, being considered a flawed democracy? Yeah, I mean, it, it's tricky. It's tricky how do we define define political regimes in the first place, and then and then Thailand specifically. I think Thailand in the past years think it's very tricky how to how to conceptualize it. I think I think it is fair to say that it is an electoral democracy since 2019 when elections were restored after the um, the five years of military rule uh, following 2014 coup. So Thailand had an election in 2019. It had another one in 2023. Um, by those standards, um, it is an electoral democracy. Now, that said, that electoral democracy is deeply flawed. I think I think um, most analysts would agree with that. And it's deeply flawed, um, especially because the um, the when the military was in control for those five years between 2014 and 2019, it passed a new constitution um, that made it extremely difficult for um, a party that is not um, allied with the conservative establishment to, in fact, become the government, even if it were to win the most number of seats in the lower house of parliament. Uh, there are many different um, tricks that the military did in this new constitution, uh, but the central one that matters the most um, in the 2019 and then especially the 2023 election is that the the um, the military constitution um, ensured that for the prime minister to be elected, you would have to have the combined uh, votes of both the lower house and parliament and the upper house, the Senate. The lower house is fully elected. The upper house is not. The upper house was fully appointed by the junta. And um, the lower house has uh, 500 seats. The upper house has 250 seats for a total of um, uh, 370, uh, sorry, uh, 250, uh, uh, 750. So you need a, a majority of 376 to become the prime minister. That's a in effect, a trap to make it extremely difficult for uh, the party that wins the most seats to uh, become the prime minister. And so the opposition party, uh, with the opposition party, the, the, the party critical of, of the conservative forces, the more, most progressive party that wanted a 2023 elections move forward, couldn't uh, take on a prime ministership because the senators refused to support the prime ministerial candidate of move forward, this progressive party. And so they were blocked from taking the, the prime ministership. So that is a trap. And in that sense, it is a very flawed democracy. Uh, speaking of the move forward party, uh, not only were they not able to form this government in the end due to the reasons that you've outlined that are institutionally baked in to the system, um, but Pita Lindsay is no longer the head of his party anymore. Do you see this as carrying significant um, implications for the move forward party heading forward into future elections or for Peter Lindjaronrat's uh, own political future? Well, yes. I mean, um, he's, Peter is a very uh, charismatic um, figure, uh, very intelligent, very charismatic figure. And so it is um, unfortunate in terms of the progressive movement that he is no longer uh, the leader um, of the party. So that is a blow for sure to the party. But the party is more than just one individual. Um, the party uh, really rose to prominence earlier in its earlier incarnation as, as known as Future Forward and was led by another very charismatic figure who was also disqualified um, by, by the Constitutional Court. Um, and then this party, Future Forward, um, regrouped as it's now named Move Forward and then went on to win these 2023 elections with the most um, seats in the House. So this party has faced, um, this party and its movement has faced uh, many challenges in its short history. And, and so far it has survived uh, despite so many efforts to, to undermine it. Um, and, and there is a deep thirst, especially among the youth in Thailand, for the values that this party is espousing. Uh, so in that sense, I don't think that the um, the absence of Pita at the helm of this party uh, will consign it to to um, to oblivion. In fact, I think um, this party is going to continue to be a significant um, force in Thailand. In the interim, the Futai Party, along with others, has formed a government. We one that's more conservative, of course, than the Move Forward Party. Uh, and I, I found it interesting as someone who's done dozens of these episodes for several countries. 
we are used to there being, I'm used to there being a lot of very common themes as to what the biggest issues that these countries face are. The economy shows up a lot. Democracy shows up a lot. Human development shows up a lot. Agriculture, not so much. And yet, uh, Futai has listed uh, in their platform agriculture as their top policy priority. Uh, why? What is it about the agricultural sector that carries such electoral implications for Thailand? Yes. So, um, so agriculture um, historically, in, in the big picture, has declined uh, sharply in terms of the um, its role in the the overall economy. Um, but at the same time, it does play a significant role um, in the economy in the sense that there is still a significant labor force employed, even if um, uh, its its overall role in the economy has has declined. Um, but crucially for for Poatai, um, the issue here is that uh, its base historically, um, and even its earlier incarnation as the Tairak Thai Party, uh, in 2001, when it was founded earlier, um, has been the north and the northeast, um, and these two regions of Thailand are are um, are the poorer regions, especially the northeast, the poorer regions of Thailand, and very agriculturally based, or at least historically very agriculturally based. Now, many people working in agriculture tend to um, also have jobs, um, perhaps in the cities, in the service sector, or or in the informal economy. But but historically they have been very much um, farmer farmer based. So the the the, the social base of of Pratai, uh regionally is a north northeast that tend to be more agriculture rural based. So that explains why uh, Pratai puts a significant emphasis on um, on agriculture. Um, now the specific policies that the the party have has has, has advanced are things like um, increasing the incomes. Uh, of farmers, so that uh, I think one of them is to to triple the the incomes of farmers to thirty thousand baht um, over the next three four years, um, and uh, and then another one that has been a recurring uh, policy theme has been to reduce the debt a debt moratorium for three years. Tairak um, Tai, the earlier incarnation of Puatai in the early 2000s, had the same policy, and many of the rivals of Puatai have the same policy of a debt moratorium for farmers. So that is a big deal that um, that parties in Thailand see as as crucial for farmers who are heavily indebted uh, because they have to buy all kinds of inputs um, for for farming. Um, now, is this policy a good one? Uh, you know, many economists criticize it as as not really solving the problems of farmers, in the sense that um, these debts these debts are will will continue to 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 be incurred um, if a more um, a better if a better strategy is not pursued to ensure that farmers can really sell their products more effectively, um, and so you know arguments about better training. Um, arguments about um, better alignment between what the farmers produce and what the market trends are, that those things are more significant for improving the livelihood of farmers. But um, as it is, Puatai has pursued these kinds of policies that are seen as, you know, some say, populist in the sense that they are very attractive to a large swath um, of, the, of the rural population. Um, so it's a recurrent theme for Puatai. And it is seen as as central to their social base. As has been mentioned before, Thailand has a reputation for being a relatively unfree country in a lot of ways. Uh, we've already talked about the unique state of its uh, government, its regime. But uh, in addition to this, you know, there are the restrictions against insulting commentary against the monarchy. Uh, what do you view as being the trajectory of the Thai politics over the next? five or so years, over the next four years, at the next elections, given that Move Forward did not successfully form a government despite the high voting, um, the high votes in favor of them. And also, broadly speaking, other lessons that you might see and where you would expect this trajectory to go based off of comparative politics and how we've seen other countries in the region perform. Yeah, well, I mean... I think Thailand is really at a crossroads. Um, I mean, that's always a, a, a very, um, you know, a big statement to, to make. But I think Thailand is at a crossroads in the sense that 
um, uh, you know, historically, um, the the military and the monarchy have been very dominant forces and have been allied in the uh, the overall control of the polity, both formally and informally. And um, in the 2000s, early 2000s, as um, Taksin Shinawat, the former prime minister, uh, was successful in several parties winning election 2001-2005, Tadak Tai, which is the predecessor of the current Puatai, that began to challenge the hegemony of the monarchy and and the military. And that, after he was, after the coup in 2006, and then he was put out into exile, that really ruptured fundamentally the um, the political and social structure of Thailand because Thaksin and the Thai Thai Party had really pursued policies deemed populist that um, really supported many in the rural sector in the North Northeast that we just discussed. And and no party or, or, or politician had ever done that in a very successful way in the past. And with Thai Thai and Thaksin um, being attacked, um, Taxing expelled, the rural sector began to question why they, the uh, an individual who had supported them was being ousted by the hegemonic forces, and that led to numerous um, protest demonstrations for for many many years, and then to another coup in 2014. All of that um, then led to the 2019 and 2023 elections and 2023 election, where a very radical progressive party moved forward, won the most seats. That is unprecedented in Thai political history that a radical party that um, articulated a platform that in fact asked for changes in the monarchy, particularly in terms of Les Majest law, um, which is one of the most draconian laws in Thailand that prohibits um, criticism um, of the monarchy in a broad sense. It says defamation um, or insults, but it's really just criticism in general. Um, they have called for reform of that of that law. That is groundbreaking. And that this party wins the most seats in the Thai lower house is 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 really, really rev- revolutionary in, in an electoral in an electoral sense. So in that sense, I'd argue Thailand is at a at a crossroads where there is a, a constant battle here between liberal progressive forces and more reactionary forces. And it culminated in this 2023 election where the Progressive Party won the most seats, but ultimately blocked, um, as we discussed, by the institutional trap that the military had laid. So what does it mean in the long run? You know, hard to say because because the, the party, the Move Forward Party, is now in the opposition, cannot pursue what it had hoped to pursue in terms of significant progressive reform. And we have a coalition uh, governing Thailand that is made up of uh, Pua Thai that was supposedly progressive, but now is allied with conservative forces. And so we have, again, this conservative bloc coming back to power, um, uh, despite um, the fact that a, a radical party had gained the most the most seats. I think what it, what, it, what it means in the long run is that Thailand will be stuck in this constant uh, back and forth between progressive and conservative forces. Um, right now, the progressive forces appear weaker because they were not able to gain the prime ministership. Um, but in the big picture, where the progressive forces have come from is, is significant. Um, they have really opened up what are so many taboos in the past. Uh, there is so much more discussion in Thailand. And there's a real craving, a real desire, a real hunger for social and political reform by a younger generation that is not going to change its views on that. And so in that sense, um, I think I'd be optimistic about Thailand's political future in the long run, even if in the short run, it is still very difficult for progressive forces to actually hold um, the the reins of, of the prime ministership. Yeah, it'll be absolutely fascinating to continue to follow Thai politics and see how things continue to go, especially in the next elections, even if they're several years away. Um, Eric Kuhonta is a professor of political science at McGill University. Professor Kuhonta, thank you so much for joining Pindrop World News today. Thank you. Alrighty, folks, it is now time for the panel. I'm joined, as always, by my amazing co-producers, Diego and Great Nick. Great to be here. 
uh, end by a special guest who we've had on the show a couple of times before, my brother, Kai Camacho. Hello again. Now, Kai, we have you on because you've been to Thailand relatively recently, and you're actually going to be going to Thailand again soon, um, in a matter of about a month or so, I believe. Uh, I want to start with you, given that experience. Thailand is really often branded as a, a pretty unfree country in terms of political and civil liberties. Freedom House uh, categorizes it as not free, it gets a score of about 30 on their index. In your experience uh, being there in whatever private conversations you might have had with Thai people, uh, does that seem like a fair characterization? Does it seem overblown, underblown? Uh, of course, I don't expect you to speak for Thai people, but just based on your experience. Yeah. Um, Thailand feels like it's a weird in-between. So, you know, I guess outward, it's very, you know, democratic and, you know, there's a lot of self-expression in Thailand, um, but there are a lot of kind of cultures or tradition, traditional aspects that have some sort of um, level of that kind of repressed freedom, not not as dramatic, like not too noticeable. Um, but, you know, there's certain aspects like if you go if you go down any street in Thailand, um, any business, they have, you know, a portrait of the monarchy, the, the king. Um, you know, a lot of uh, uh, monarchy flags, um, you know, people do have their own opinions um, and they do sometimes express it, but um, usually it's, it's very, it's not in a very public way um, that you might, uh, you know, in, in, in a city like Bangkok, you might see, you know, more expression, but for the most part, uh, a lot of those expressions are more internalized. Diego, I want to ask you the same question, but pointing specifically towards uh, the monarchy, uh, because often that is portrayed as this sort of red line beyond which, you know, you cannot be too critical of the monarchy. Because uh, you've been to Thailand, of course, yourself as well. Does that, um, what was your experience in that regard? Uh, with the monarchy, when I went, it was like, I think uh, a few days after the, the last king had passed away um and there was some sort of measure um where people were supposed to dress in uh black or not necessarily all black but like darker colors um for a certain period as a sign of mourning so it did show to me that the monarchy still seemed to hold a, a lot of significance in society um what wasn't it seemed like there was like um a, a decent amount of the population following it it just became unclear to me how much of uh, how much of it was like genuine and how much of it was just like social norms. And that's kind of something I'd be interested in um, understanding more. Uh, and Kai, I we were talking about this beforehand, but I think you and I independently shared this understanding that the previous monarch, Rama the Ninth, was actually quite popular in Thailand on the whole. Although, of course, in a country like Thailand, you can't get reliable polling about this stuff. Um, but Rama the 10th, on the other hand, not quite as much. What is, is, is that a fair assessment from what you understand? Yeah, when I, I visited in, uh, in 2021. And so a lot of the, we kind of had a, like a discussion on Thai politics and uh, the uh, Rama the 9th was very popular. Um, the previous monarchy, uh, monarchy was reigned for a long time. Um, similar to Queen Elizabeth. And then when he passed away, it was that similar kind of shock that there was, you know, there was a change. And a lot of people uh, aren't super happy with uh, with the current monarch. Um, mostly, uh, it, it's, it's a lot of kind of, you know, uh, not, they, they don't think he's the best uh, monarch when compared to uh, the last monarch that was uh, that ran the country for, like I said, a very long time uh, for you know uh, people's whole lives. I I want to now focus on something that uh, our our guest Professor Kuhonta really emphasized, which is that Thailand is at a crossroads. And that's a phrase that we sometimes use in our hyperbolic journalistic way, but to hear an expert guest using that phrase. Um, 
I think it's a testament to the reality of the situation. Now, he explains this crossroads as being this division between liberal and reactionary forces, with reactionary forces being largely the military and the monarchy and their supporters, and uh, liberal forces being primarily the younger generation. But Thailand has a degree of what we would call like regime proofing. That's why uh, Move Forward could not form a government because there were institutional programs in place, um, like military appointees in the Senate, that prevented uh, the uh, popular uh, government that was anti-monarchy in some ways um, from actually assuming power. How do we move on from this? Uh, I want to talk, address this to you, Nick, because you and I have in particular had a lot of discussions about authoritarian regimes and how they stay in place. And how can a youth movement move forward and actually see change made? Because in so many countries, it's been unsuccessful, but it has been successful in some cases. Well, I, I mean, I think that sort of depends on what kind of change we're talking about. Um, from my understanding of Move Forward, it seems like they have sort of two elements to them. One is the pro-democracy element, which might be more popular with sort of younger people, urbanites, intellectual class. And the other is sort of an economist, economic populist message, which is more popular with rural communities and um, the sort of poor, more agricultural areas. I think sometimes regimes pay attention to that and they realize, okay, if we're actually responsive to the economic concerns of a population, then we're going to take a lot of steam out of the sort of anti-regime forces, right? Um, so it's perfectly conceivable that if, if you're talking about, like, how do we move forward, Part of moving forward could be the regime or, or the pro-military government. Regime might not be totally appropriate considering that there, there is sort of a democratic element to Thailand's government. Um, being like, okay, let's respond to that. You know, let's have a plan about, you know, improving agricultural well-being or, or something like that. Um, the other element of that is that if they don't and the regime is unresponsive and continues to become unpopular, you sort of radicalize the opposition away from, like, normal politics. Um, and given that there's a pre-existing structure, this move on party, that seems like it's pretty popular. Um, you have a pretty good structure through which you can have a more sort of protest oriented, um, movement, right? So not as invested in normal politics, more about maybe a street movement to, to put pressure on the government until it, um, you know, reforms in, in whatever way the protest movement desires. And that's important because in a lot of countries where regimes are genuinely unpopular, for whatever reason, the opposition just can't organize. There's no structure. There's no leadership. There's, there's, you know, either because of repression or because of other reasons. Um, and so even though a regime might not be very popular, um, there's a lot of problems organizing against it. So I, I think, you know, th th that's sort of what I would imagine going forward, you know, as sort of a Thai Thailand layman, <laughs> um, but as someone who reads a lot about authoritarianism, that's sort of what I would imagine, I guess. To be fair, we're all sort of Thai Thailand laymen to a good extent. Um, yeah. But Speaking of popularity and in the Move Forward Party, uh, when I asked Professor Kuhonta about the about Peter Limjoronrat no longer being the head of the party after his failure to form a government, he seemed to acknowledge that there would be a, a, some damage to the party um, because of that, because he was a very charismatic leader. He was young. He had a lot of personal appeal to him, but he seemed to think it would not in the long run prove too diminishing. I am tempted in thinking the opposite way in a lot of, in a lot of respects, at least for like the next election, right? Because to me, popular leaders make a huge, have a huge role in turnout, right? People turn out to vote oftentimes not just because they agree with the party's platform, but because they are convinced and persuaded that through individuals who have that charisma, that their votes can make a difference. And since this government was not able to be successfully formed, I do think that the change in leadership could be a huge deal for move forward. Uh, but I don't know what your all's take on this is. Is the charismatic leader something that is overblown? or in general, or do you like, what is your take on this? I mean, generalizing from other experiences that you, you've come across. I mean, I, I think that not having the charismatic leader definitely hurts in like the short term. Um, but I, it does seem to me like there's a lot of like, I guess, ripeness for mobilization or potential ripeness for mobilization. Um, 
because i mean just think about it like you you have the, sort of like the old guard monarchy and military um who the the i guess younger um like segments of the population have signaled that they're a bit tired of them um holding on to power so much and they tried to um elect a more progressive party and like um from an electoral sense they were successful and that they won the most seats but because of this sort of I think kind of draconian law that allows the military to appoint guys to the upper house who can then block these candidates. They didn't win. So I I could pretty easily see as this goes on a, a sort of bigger protest movement happening. And then I think it, it could be pretty easy for another charismatic leader to um, come to power. So yeah, maybe it'll hurt the party itself in the short term, but like the wider movement that the party represents um, I think will continue in, in the like medium and, and long term. Yeah, I think, I think, well, one, so like Thailand, it's very, there has been a sense of division between very like urban areas, specifically around Bangkok and, you know, rural areas. And I think a lot of populist movements or like, especially in recent years, issues with the government have somewhat kind of broken those barriers that have like uh, long been there, especially um, before the uh, military coup. Um, but uh, really, I think, you know, Thailand is a pretty, uh, has been a relatively stable country, um, you know, and I think it's been stable with the, a lot of the issues of democracy um, or issues with that. Um, but I think, you know, if, if Thailand wants, you know, a lot of change or is going to change no, no matter what, it's, definitely going to need um, a lot more movement, especially amongst uh, young Thais, especially in Bangkok, but also um, also a charismatic leader to uh, change that, you know, uh, change the status quo. Um, because quite frankly, it's not as much as the recent recent events with, um, uh, with the uh, prime minister not uh, going through, even though getting all the votes and whatnot, um, that's definitely going to change a lot of people's minds. Um, and that's definitely something that could ha have, uh, you know, varying different consequences. I want to turn and, to the international, uh, sorry, go ahead, Diego. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious. Um, would, would you say that, um, the, the support for like the military slash monarchy and then the, the sort of new progressive movement would you say that's very sharply divided by age or is it divided more by like class or other factors i, I think there's definitely um uh, well definitely with the monarchy there's definitely an age factor right so if you're older you're uh in thailand you're probably more traditional you know in supporting the monarchy in terms of the military um, I'm not. I'm not fully sure. Um, I think there's mm -hmm. definitely those factors on you know age in similar in similar ways, but I'm I'm not fully sure. Got it. I'll I'll say that the um, statistics that are available tend to reflect age being the biggest factor. Young people really are the ones who spearheaded the move forward party, and that um, uh, in, in in rural areas there tends to be a decent amount of populism that is not always in line with the military monarchy policy platforms, but it's also not entirely against it. So there are definitely significant class and uh, like sort of geographical elements to how people vote. But in the case of Move Forward, it was really youth, not even just urban youth, but rural youth as well, who really spearheaded this movement. At least that's what the statistics that we have sort of reflect. Um, I want to bring in international stuff here, though, too, because three of us are international relations majors. Sorry, Kai. Um, and Nick, I'll, I want to start with you, but what uh, do you consider to be the potential for the international community to put democracy higher on the agenda for Thailand? And what is the probability that they would actually do that? And I, I, I bring this up particularly in the case of Thailand, because it is a country with an unusually high trade to GDP ratio. For reference, in the United States, about 25% of, of our GDP is the equivalent of the total amount of trade transactions we do. In Thailand, it's about 130%. Now, 
trade is higher than GDP because, you know, they import and export, their imports count against their GDP and so forth. But either way, that's a testament to the importance of trade in the Thai economy. I mean, like if I, in total honesty, probably nothing for now. I don't think that there's a huge interest or, or potential for international involvement. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, for my day job, I've been working a lot with people who are former, um, you know, diplomatic uh, pe people who work in a diplomatic capacity as um, ambassadors or, or national security people or something like that. And something I've sort of gained from spending time with them and talking with them is that uh, U.S. foreign policy and foreign policy, generally speaking, tends to like usually be pretty crisis oriented. Um, it, as opposed, it, there can be like sort of long term economic issues like free trade deals and stuff like that. But other than that, uh, a lot of it's pretty crisis oriented. Like what's the crisis of the day? What are we going to focus on today? And if there's not a crisis of the day happening in a place like Thailand, it's just not going to receive a ton of attention, um, you know, which is, which, which has drawbacks and, and maybe some benefits because, you know, we get to focus on the crisis. There's a lot of crises, <laughs> crises in the world right now um, in, in Gaza and Ukraine, you know, et cetera. So, I mean, the, the, the situation in Thailand, it doesn't, to my knowledge, appear to be drastically bad. You know, you, you had the, you, you, nobody believed Thailand was a paragon of democracy, right? Um, the, like you said, there'd been pretty good regime proofing measures. Um, so I don't see the international community being all too concerned, frankly, um, given the other issues going on and, and given the fact that like, you know, um, you know, Thai, you know, uh, the ability of, you know, political parties to form representative governments in Thailand was not necessarily the um, a, a top priority for any major capitals right now. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that this is a very common theme across broader democratization efforts of if you have a lot of prosperity, like Thailand has by regional standards, as Professor Kuhonta said, compared to Indonesia, compared to Brunei in some respects, it is not a particularly crisis-prone country. It's relatively stable, and it has a, a pretty strong economy by the standards of the region. Now, on the other hand, this is the type of stuff that democratization, modernization theory tends to suggest does lead to democratization. As quality of life improves, people care more about things like democracy because their basic needs are better satisfied. On the other hand, if you're an international actor like the United States, if things are stable, you tend to not care as much about those democratic aspects of the country. You tend to not, uh, maybe not democratic aspects, but stability comes first. And if there's not a crisis problem, you tend to not be too concerned with the regime. Um, at any rate, uh, I'll go ahead and conclude this panel with a final question um, directed towards Kai, because not only have you been to Thailand, but you're going soon. Now, I believe you're going with your architecture program. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, but still, you obviously come on the show because you have a mind for politics and such. What are you most interested to see when you go to Thailand? Politically speaking, what are you looking out for, for the mood of the nation? Yeah. So our program is going to a lot of schools in Thailand. And so I think it's going to be uh, very interesting seeing uh, kind of the youth in Thailand um, and seeing kind of their views on, you know, democracy or, you know, the politics of the country, um, but also kind of what they think the future of Thailand is. Um, you know, obviously Thailand has uh, invested a lot in tourism. Uh, you know, that's why, you know, I'm going there and a lot of, a lot of people want to go to Thailand. Um, but, you know, thinking about, you know, kind of, how Thailand, you know, influences, you know, uh, it, its culture has an influence uh, in the region, um, but also kind of why why it's important and like, you know, what's what's going to what yeah what's going to be the political future of of Thailand and I think kind of experiencing um, from the like a university or like a youth perspective um, to see you know, how, how their minds, uh, you know, and how they're, they're going to be the future of the country. So um, what they think of that, I think that's kind of what I'm most interested in, in terms of uh, the politics.
Alrighty, folks. I mean, uh, I don't know if there were any other thoughts that people would like to share. Um, we will go ahead and wrap up the panel there. Thank you so much, uh, Nick and Diego, for coming on, except I guess it is kind of your job. And thank you for Kai. Uh, thanks for coming on, and I hope this upcoming trip to Thailand is good. And heck, maybe we'll have to have you back on to share any insights you might have had. Now it's time to spin the globe. And our pin has dropped on Kurdistan, an episode that Diego has been waiting to make for a long time. So make sure to tune in to your podcast app or YouTube to hear the latest news, insights, and analysis surrounding Kurdistan. One more note, Pindrop is a small project that Nick, Diego, and I enjoy running, but we have been steadily growing over these past three months. We would love to be able to devote more time and effort to Pindrop, but without it growing bigger, we just can't afford to do that with our other commitments. So, if you would like to help Pindrop grow, produce more content, and help us three out, there are a few things you could do. First and foremost is word of mouth. Be that through conversations with friends who you know are interested in international news, or through spreading news about us on social media. If you're watching on YouTube, leaving a comment and liking do wonders for our viewership through the algorithm. Likewise, reviewing Pindrop on your podcast app would help us immensely. Regardless of how or if you help Pindrop grow, thanks for your support. If you want to make sure new episodes of Pindrop are downloaded to your device automatically, make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app. If you're watching on YouTube, please consider subscribing to our channel and ringing the bell to hear notifications. Our guest today was Eric Kuhonta. Our guest panelist was my brother, Kai Camacho. I am AJ Camacho, the chief producer of today's episode and a scriptwriter and executive producer here at Pintra. Diego Austin and Nicholas Castillo are my co-producers. Pintra World News was created by Ian Kearns.